Hello everyone and welcome back. This is Robert Fleming, one of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. You're listening to Elder Law Issues with me and my partner and colleague in podcasting, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. Got to come up with a uh, catchier phrase for what we do together when we podcast. I don't know, Robert. I think podcasting is is very self-explanatory, so I kind of like that. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> partner in crime doesn't seem right for a law-related show. No, we don't want that. <laughs> Well, anyway, Elizabeth and I are going to talk to you today about disinheriting, disinheriting particularly your children. We get a lot of clients, and Elizabeth, I know you've seen this as well, who say, I really want to disinherit one of my children. Maybe I want to disinherit several of my children. And sometimes that's because the children have have not been good. They have done bad things. Sometimes it's because they have married poorly. Sometimes it's because although the person loves the child, uh, the, the child doesn't need an inheritance and one of the other children needs more support. There are lots of reasons for disinheriting children, but, uh, but a lot of misunderstanding about, uh, about how to do it and what the effect is. And Robert, one of the things that I usually do when somebody starts talking about disinheriting a family member, like a child, is I ask why. I actually dig into that conversation a bit because it's really important for us to know the reason why somebody might want to disinherit a family member like a child. And every once in a while, we may hear um, a rationale that mechanically we can actually work around or figure out a way how to make sure that if somebody wants to give some benefit to the child, we can engineer that into the plan. I think that the biggest challenge for me when I talk to somebody about disinheriting a child is helping them work through what the administration of their estate may look like. So if somebody says, I want to disinherit my daughter, making sure they understand, well, your daughter's going to figure that out at some point. And, and also what the ramifications may be to the rest of the administration, to the rest of the beneficiaries. What happens if the daughter asks for a copy of the estate plan or files something in court? Uh, and I agree with you that we want a, a discussion about the reasons for disinheritance. As you say, sometimes the reasons that people give to disinherit a child turn out not to be important. My favorite classic one is, oh, I don't want to leave anything to my daughter because she's on public benefits and that would cause her to lose her SSI and her Medicaid eligibility. Well, that's actually very easy to work around. In fact, that's something we do a lot of, creating special needs trusts to make sure that there is no loss of benefits from from, uh, a trust that benefits the person but doesn't hand them the money outright. But the other important thing that people... Uh, may not think of. We're not just being nosy. We want our office notes, our intake notes, to reflect why they wanted to disinherit so that in 20 years, or with a little luck, 50 years, when they die and somebody says, why did they disinherit their son? Uh, We can, or more accurately, the people who take over from us in some number of years can look in the notes and say, oh, it was because of this. It was a legitimate reason. No, they didn't just forget they had a son. They, they consciously intended to disinherit the son or the daughter or to limit the inheritance. And by the way, when we say disinheritance, we're talking about different inheritances as well. So if you have three children, 
we sort of assume, as society does, that you're probably going to leave everything equally to the three of them, one-third each. Maybe you want to leave it 40, 40, 20, because there is some really good reason why the 20% child doesn't need as much of your estate as the, as the other two, or the other two have helped you in your, in your older age to take care of you and, and take you in, or whatever reason you have. We just want to have our file notes reflect what that reason is. So, Robert, can we talk a little bit about no contest clauses or interim provisions? These are things that attorneys talk about all of the time. And, and when I work with a client who is very sure about his or her decision to disinherit a child and we start to do the drafting in, in a will or a trust, we talk about omission language and we also talk about no contest clauses. And I don't think that people quite understand how complicated those can be and also problematic. Yeah, they really can be. And as you said, Elizabeth, they they have multiple names, sometimes called no contest clauses. But I personally like calling them interorum provisions because that really reflects the purpose of the of the provision. It is to terrorize the person so that they won't contest. So if a client says, well, I have one daughter who I want to disinherit, and I want to make sure that she can't contest this, so put in a no contest clause. I say, well, what's the point? If you don't have a no contest clause, she gets nothing. If you put in a no contest clause and she contests it, she gets nothing. So you've given her no incentive not to contest. If you really want to make a no contest provision effective, you need to leave her something and then say, but if she contests it, then she loses that. And it's got to be something that is generous enough so she will miss it, so it'll it'll affect her behavior. If you say, I leave her $100 and here's a no contest provision, well, what does she care about $100? Is 10000 enough to keep her from contesting? Is 10% of your estate enough to keep her from contesting? Uh, so it's more than just putting in a magic provision that prevents contests. And Robert, when we're talking about these provisions, we're really talking about Arizona law. So it's really important that people listening to us today, if you're listening and you're living in another state, if you're an estate planning attorney who is not in Arizona, please understand that we are talking specifically about Arizona law. I think the idea, Robert, with the no contest provisions or the interim clauses is is to think a step further when we're talking to a client in that estate planning context about the administration. So again, they understand that when they die, when the person dies, and it's time to distribute money from the estate, if you've named somebody as a beneficiary of your estate, even if that person just gets $10, the person's going to be notified that you've died and that he or she has an interest in $10 in your estate. So sometimes I have clients who who have questions about why a child may even be entitled to receive a copy of an estate plan. And these can be complicated questions, and it's important that we slow down and talk about it a little bit. I think that the big picture also often concerns a child's spouse. And well, if my daughter dies, does that mean that her husband is going to receive the inheritance intended for my daughter? The answer to that is generally no. However, a lot depends on the timing of things and the provisions in your documents. Robert, can you talk a little bit about, when we think about children and their spouses, what the trends are that you see and what some of the problems are that we often encounter? A lot of our clients uh, who, who may not have grown up in Arizona come to us and say, oh, we realize Arizona is a community property state. 
we're not used to that. So obviously, if we leave anything to our daughter, then it's immediately community property. And we say, hold on, not true. Let's back off. Gifts are not community property. And Elizabeth, you're right to say this is often state-specific. This whole business of disinheriting uh, children is a very state-specific issue. But none of the community property states would treat an inheritance in the name of one person as community property when received. It will always be separate property. So unless you say in your, your will or your trust, uh, I leave everything to my daughter, Amy, and her husband, John, then it only goes to Amy. If you say, I leave it to Amy, John has no interest in it. Uh, and, and so you don't automatically create community property. Now, if you just leave it outright to Amy and she succumbs to pressure from her husband or decides that she doesn't care about this, she can easily turn it into community property. But when it arrives in her hands, it is separate property. And Robert, I think that slowing down to have these conversations about concerns with spouses and, and grandchildren and children, it's, it's just so important. And so sometimes I know that people feel like it may be prying when I kind of dig into conversation about all of this, but I, I do think it's important. One other note that I'd like our listeners to, to keep in mind is if you're on the fence about disinheriting a child, let's talk about it. Um, I think that this is a conversation that, that really demands some time and some thought, both on how to, to properly engineer your documents to effectuate your intent. But when we see people who change their documents or want to amend their trusts every couple of months, it does raise questions to me about what, what makes sense as their estate planner. So every once in a while, um, I will talk to a client who wants to disinherit a child and say, let's keep this conversation going and circle back in another couple of weeks. I'm not doing that because I disagree that disinheriting the child is a good or bad idea. I'm just doing that because I think it's important to sit with the information and and not to make decisions really quickly. The holidays are a time and different times of year, sometimes around tax season, where we see people who really start to be concerned about their estate plans and, and after a family event possibly want to make changes. When we don't do th- these things at a drop of a hat, it doesn't mean that we don't think they're good ideas. It just means that we really want to think it through. You know, there are two important pervasive myths that I want to make sure we knock down before we leave this topic. One of them is that if, uh, if you don't put in a no contest provision or even if you do, some person who's peripheral to your estate might contest your will or your trust. If you have three children, let's say, and you leave everything equally to the three children, your sister has no basis in which to contest the will or trust because she wouldn't receive anything if she was successful. If she established that you were incompetent when you signed your will or trust, she still wouldn't get anything because she's not an heir of yours under Arizona law. If you have children and you're married, your siblings and your aunts and uncles don't get anything, even if your wealth came from the family. So even if they feel entitled, they aren't in fact entitled. You don't need to have a no contest provision for more distant relatives. If you're disinheriting one of your children or your spouse, and we're going to talk about disinheriting spouses because that's kind of a special subject. We'll do that in another podcast episode. Uh, you, you, uh, you don't need to go to, through a lot of extra steps. There are not big hurdles to disinheriting people who stand to gain nothing. 
Here's the other big myth I want to knock down. This is perhaps the most persistent myth in estate planning, and that is that you have to leave something to everybody in order to disinherit them. Uh, we see how many times, Elizabeth, uh, that people have written their own wills and leave $10 to their daughter and, uh, and nothing else. Well, as you pointed out, that means the daughter is entitled to $10. She's entitled to an accounting of the estate. She's entitled to get notice. She's entitled to, uh, to, to show up in court and argue about capacity. You don't have to leave her $10. The only reason that myth came to be is because there is a line of old, old, old cases where people tried to prove that the best evidence of your incapacity was that you forgot you had children and you didn't leave anything to them. Uh, and that's not a problem. You can solve that problem by saying, I don't leave anything to my daughter Amy because, and I don't even want you to tell us why in the document. It's not out of any lack of love and affection. I just choose not to leave anything. And by saying her name and your will and your trust, you have identified that you know you have a daughter Amy. So it's not creeping dementia. It's not forgetfulness. It's just your decision not to leave anything to her. And Robert, I think that those are two really good myths to bust. Um, and I think that folks who, who want to have a conversation about this need to know that it will also be confidential. Um, talking a little bit about family politics and, and your feelings about the kids um, that you have, it can be really a tender thing. So keep in mind when you do talk to us about these things or share some concerns, um, this is not information that we will share with heirs down the road. It is not information that we will share when you die. Um, this is a part of what is protected by the attorney-client privilege. More than once, I have had a circumstance where I represent multiple generations. I represent the parents and one or more of the children. And I know that the parents have disinherited my other client. And that's none of their business until the death of the parent. So uh, that's something we keep close. We, we treat those confidences as terribly important as they are. So tell us about what you're thinking about your kids or how they've married or how good they are at managing money or whether they're going to get public benefits and all those variations. And Robert, as somebody here who does not have children, I will tell you that many people listening to us today may not have kids. And, and it is important that we talk with those people as well about nieces and nephews and siblings, um, because some of the questions and the concerns that we discuss when we talk to people about disinheriting a child actually are the same kinds of discussions that we need to have with you if you don't have children and want to start to disinherit other family. So keep in mind, Robert, we equal love here. Absolutely. As we talk about this, we have Duncan, one of the <laughs> office dogs, lying between us. And I know, because I wrote your will, that he's going to get everything out of your estate. Oh, yeah. Big pet trust for Duncan. <laughs> I, I made that up, folks. <laughs> Although Duncan is a pretty deserving fellow. But he would be crushed if we did a disinheritance provision or a no contest clause. <laughs> Well, that's, uh, that's what we want to talk about today. As I say, uh, probably our next podcast episode, we'll talk about disinheriting a spouse, why you might want to do it, what downfalls, pitfalls there are, what the effect is in under Arizona law. It's going to be another opportunity to highlight that Arizona and other states may not agree on these kinds of issues. So it's going to be very Arizona specific. And we will talk to you then. I'm Robert Fleming, and I've been chatting with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. 
uh, my partner, not in crime, in uh, but in the practice of law and in podcasting. You're listening to Elder Law Issues, and um, and we hope you'll join us again next time.